0: Our second scripture reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. These familiar words uh, can be found at page 4 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ, among us. Please join me in prayer. O God, give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, and strength to follow your will through Jesus Christ. Amen. One evening, a family gathered around the dining room table for dinner and the five-year-old son blurted out, it's my turn to say grace. Mom replied, great, go for it. Instead of his usual, God is great, God is good, the boy asked if he could say the Lord's prayer and his his impressed parents said, of course. The family bowed their heads and he began to pray, our Father who art in heaven, He stumbled a bit over Hallowood, but kept going, saying next what he thought he'd heard in church every week, my kingdom come, my will be done. His parents smiled at his youthful mistake, but after dinner, when they were alone, his mom said, it made me think, how many times during the day do we act as if we're praying, my kingdom come. My will be done. My or thy. Such tiny words, such an enormous difference. Those small words just might be the basic difference between people of faith and people of no faith. Is it all about me and what I want? Or is life richer, happier, and more hopeful when I want what God wants? But what does God want? What do we mean when we say God's will? More than once in the last few weeks, when I mentioned I was preaching about God's will today, the response was a grimace. The will of God is rarely a happy topic, which is why this topic ended up in our sermon series on questions about faith. Is God's will like fate or destiny? If God is in charge, does that mean that everything that happens must be God's will? Are human beings sort of like marionettes or pawns in a chess game? That makes God responsible for some pretty awful stuff. It also conveniently means people don't have to take responsibility for their own choices and actions. In the winter of 1983... A car went off the road in the middle of the night and sank into the dark, cold waters of Boston Harbor. Inside the car was the college-age son of the Reverend William Sloan Coffin, who at the time was a senior pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City. On his first Sunday back in the pulpit after the funeral, Dr. Coffin preached a now classic sermon. He told how a well-meaning neighbor had said to him, I just don't understand the will of God. To which Dr. Coffin replied somewhat testily, I'll say you don't, lady. Do you think it was the will of God that my son never fixed that lousy windshield wiper on his car? That he probably was driving too fast in such a storm? That he probably had a couple of beers too many? Do you think it was God's will that there are no streetlights along that stretch of road and no guardrails separating the road and Boston Harbor. Nothing so infuriates me as the incapacity of seemingly intelligent people to get it through their heads that God does not go around this world with his fingers on triggers, his fist around knives, his hands on steering wheels. The one thing that should never be said when someone dies is, it is the will of God. Never do we know enough to say that. My own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die, that when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to break. Why bad things happen is a mystery for another sermon. Let's leave it at this God doesn't cause evil but is the answer to evil. Well, okay, then. If God isn't pulling triggers, then is God's will about something we're supposed to do? This idea frightens some folks. They're afraid that if they listen to God's will, they'll have to quit their jobs, become missionaries, or sell their vacation home. And above all, quit having fun. Don't get too close to God, they think. God will only make your life difficult. Or... Is God's will a secret and detailed plan for our lives that we have to try to figure out, perhaps guessing right or maybe guessing wrong? It's like the man who was so serious about losing weight that he changed his route to work so he wouldn't drive past his favorite bakery. But then one day he walked into his office carrying a big box of donuts. When his co-workers looked surprised, he smiled and said, These are special donuts. I accidentally drove by the bakery this morning, and there in the window was a magnificent display of donuts. And so I prayed, Lord, if it is your will for me to have those donuts, let me find a parking place right in front of the bakery. And sure enough, the eighth time around the block, there it was. How do we go about figuring out what God's will means? It's a great question because, to be fair, you can find verses in Scripture that would support any number of interpretations. But in the New Testament in particular, God's will is used to mean something very different from fate or a secret plan. One of the two Greek words for God's will in the New Testament is the lemma, which is always translated will. You might be surprised to know that the other, eudokia, is translated to have good pleasure in or to take delight in. That gives an entirely different feeling to the phrase God's will. So listen for a moment to some verses from Scripture. Pretend that you've never heard anything about the will of God. It is not the will, the lemma, of my Father who is in heaven. That one of these little ones should perish. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure, Eudokia, to give you the kingdom. Work out your salvation with holy seriousness, for God is at work in you, both to will, Thilemma, and to work for God's good pleasure, Eudokia. God has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of God's will, Thilemma. According to God's purpose, good pleasure, which God has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in God, things in heaven and things on earth. So in the New Testament, God's will isn't a terrible event. In fact, it's good news. It's God's saving work to create a kingdom that is good beyond our imagining. It's God's not-so-secret plan to save the world and unite all things, which is what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We say the Lord's Prayer so often, so routinely, that we might miss how beautiful it is, but also how revolutionary and challenging it is. The petition about God's will is linked with the petition about God's kingdom. They go together. Thy kingdom come on earth, thy will be done on earth. We often put a pause in between thy will be done and on earth that doesn't really belong there. And when we do that, it's easier for us to imagine, as many folks do, that Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven once we're dead. No. Jesus taught us to pray. Thy will be done on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. The way things are in God's heavenly realm is the way things are to be here now on earth. That's why they're linked. You might notice that Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, May your will be done just among us disciples as it is in heaven, or even, May your will be done in Israel. Jesus' vision of the kingdom is a reality that will come on earth to the whole planet. It's a universal vision. It's for everyone, everywhere, not just for the elite few. Jesus' contemporaries often forgot this global understanding of God's concern, just as many religious people today forget it. Connecting God's kingdom with God's will means the will of God has a definite content, a content revealed by Jesus in his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. If the kingdom of God were a box of cereal, the biblical list of ingredients on the back would read forgiveness of sins, welcome of the outcast, feeding the hungry, sharing what we have, loving our enemies, a community of friends, peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Every once in a while, an American president, for public relations reasons, proclaims a year as the year of the Bible. Jesus would say, if you're serious, proclaim it as the year of God's will. And here is what that year would look like. Good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed, Healing for the bruised and broken, love for the despised, homes for the homeless, jobs for the unemployed, economic justice, help for cities, no more protection of special privileges. The will of God is not some dark, hidden side of God. The will of God is the saving of the whole world, the uniting of all things. And the will of God is not something to which we blindly and fearfully resign ourselves. It ought to bring us joy. There's an old hymn with the words by poet John Hayes that says this well. Not in dumb resignation we lift our hands on high. Not like the nerveless fatalist content to do and die. Our faith springs like the eagles who soar to meet the sun, and cries exulting unto thee, O Lord, thy will be done. So if the will of God is good news, joyful news, then what's our struggle? Why do we need to pray week after week, thy will be done? It's because sometimes our will and God's will don't square up. Every day we have to grapple with the question, Am I praying, my will be done, or thy will be done? Sometimes answering this question is easy, other times it's a hard slog. We all have our own struggles with the idea of surrendering to God's will. For some of you, any notion of surrender brings dark and sickening waves. You've been made to surrender and later felt violated. And maybe it's all been justified in the name of religion or love. Or maybe you were taught a theology that said you should be afraid of the will of God because it's the opposite of what you might want or need. That's why we gather here. We can't make the kingdom come on earth, but we can participate in it with God. Together we help each other figure out how to do that. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul isn't handing the Christian community a new set of rules. He's giving examples of what it looks like to live in response to God's grace, according to the will of an extravagantly loving God. Paul is very concrete. Living according to God's will doesn't mean withdrawing from the world. It means living in the world, but transformed so that our values and goals are different from those of much of the world. Here as Christ Church, we practice that. We can remind each other that God loves us and wants what's best for us. God wills the best for the whole planet. God calls us to life. In fact, God calls us to abundant life. But God's will doesn't happen overnight or quickly not even in our lifetime or in many lifetimes and so we look with hope toward the future along with the communion of saints that we celebrate today we look ahead in hope continuing to ask my will or thy will each day in each relationship in each choice including my friends this Tuesday on Election Day. Another bit of wisdom from William Sloan Coffin. I think we can say that democracy is a form of government that demands more virtue of its citizens than any other form of government. But I do not think we can say that democracy guarantees that the virtue will be exercised. So let us term freedom of choice less a virtue and more of a necessity, a precondition to real freedom, which is to make choices that are generous, loving, and wise. Our wills are only free when they can will the will of a loving God. Our wills are only free when they can will the will of a loving God. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.